Welcome to season three of the Today is a Good Day podcast, a podcast to bring you a new point of support as you navigate your NICU journey. Today is a Good Day is here to be a resource for you. We share personal stories from families who have been there, important advice from medical professionals, opportunities to focus on self-care and more. Please don't forget to hit subscribe, share this episode with anyone who might find it helpful and leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. The NICU journey can bring people into your life you never expected. I'll never forget the day I met our next guest walking through the halls of the NICU. I remember Melissa was wearing a Penn State sweatshirt and I said, we are, as I walked past her. And that truly opened the door for us to connect with each other. And we've stayed in touch for nearly 11 years. While our personal NICU journeys were different, we share a common bond of the NICU. Brett and Melissa have a special story to share today of strength, determination, and dedication, doing all that they could do to advocate for their sons born at 24 weeks and five days. Welcome, Melissa and Brett. Really great to have you here with us today. Tell us a little bit about your pregnancy journey before you welcomed your boys, Melissa. So, um, I mean, pretty normal. Uh, We uh, went for what, our eight-week first pregnancy, very excited, found out we were having twins. I thought Brett was lying to me when he said he saw two heartbeats, Um, just, you know, messing around with me because there's uh, none in the family and it was just completely spontaneous twins. So we kind of felt um, there was some some other kind of power, you know, at play here Um, and that, you know, we were really blessed. And uh, so everything went Beautifully from there, we were constantly told through the journey that with twins, it's high risk. You don't know what that means early on, just feeling good, enjoying it. And um, we went for our, well, it was a 19-week scan uh, to find out what sex they were. And um, we got the 10 fingers, 10 toes, well, 20 fingers, 20 toes. Um, Everybody looks good. And... um, and then uh, they they did, um, you know, one of the the other ultrasound and saw that my cervix was funneled. Again, not incredibly abnormal for uh, having twins. Um, I hear about people all the time that go on bed rest. Okay, that's a normal thing with multiples. Um, so we left there that day, and um, they put me on bed rest uh, that weekend and said to come back at the uh, that after the weekend. Um, and when we went back, everything it was exactly where it was. My cervix was still just funneled at the same place. Um, and as we're walking out the door, I'm in the frame of the door. They said, you sure you don't feel any kind of contractions? And I felt nothing. Um, and they said, you know what, just to be safe, why don't you go across the street to Abington and, and get hooked up, right? So, um, in the emergency room, they hook me up. The contractions are just, you know, off the charts. And I'm looking at it thinking, I don't feel a thing. This can't, it's not, it's not right. Because it was so early. It was so right. early, you don't feel it. Right. Yeah. I, ne- I don't know what a contraction feels like, really. Um, never made it to that point in the pregnancy. Um, and they never, they didn't think that we would make it through uh, that the next few days. Um, you know, we were kind of, the nurses um, would give us little, you know, tips here and there. Um, when you went over to Abington and they hooked you up, mm-hmm. 
How far along were you then? Were you still at 20 weeks? 19 and 19. change. And so they put you on bed rest at that time? They put me on bed rest at that time. And um, that was when I went into the mom unit um, at that point and uh, never came out um, and was there until um, the obvious. But um, there, were, it was a roller coaster you know, being on the mom unit. Um, Mom unit, never heard the term before. Right. <laughs> Lots right. of never heard of it before. Um, and um, and so we were on the mom unit, still on kind of like modified bed rest. Um, and as things progressed and, and got worse, uh, you know, my ability to get out of bed was just non-existent at one point. Um, and I mean, I think Brett can kind of speak to some of what was happening from the doctor's point of view and like what he was hearing because everybody was just trying to isolate me a little bit, mm -hmm. keep me calm, um, keep me calm, keep me comfortable. Um, certainly seemed like uh, contractions were related to levels of stress. Um, so we created a very Zen environment despite the chaos that was happening. Um, but, uh, you know, Brett knows what was going on and kind of all the talking behind the scenes. Which I have to say, I mean, the fact that you were able to go in around 19 weeks and stay on bed rest until 24 mm -hmm. weeks yeah. when the boys arrived is really amazing. But Brett, how were you feeling at this time looking at Melissa on bed rest? I mean, to what you to speak to what you just said, I mean, you know, there was really not too many people even in the hospital setting that would even really entertain any kind of thoughts of like, a positive outcome. I mean, everything was more geared towards like just sort of how we're going to handle things after whatever happens, happens. So it was overwhelming. I mean, it, it was just, it was, you know, you went from complete euphoria to uh, having twins and um, to, you know, just wondering if she was going to be okay. It was, it was just, was very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's like you're just trying to keep your wits about you because you know that you need to make some very serious decisions. And I was concerned that, you know, she was going to push herself too far and potentially do something to hurt herself. Mm -hmm. But there was, I mean, at least there was at least three or four times along the way where one of the attendings came in and said, look, one more drop of blood and that's it. Like we're done. And uh, every time you know, s somehow, like, you know, she managed to even get through the night. And uh, somehow we were able to get through to, you know, that, that very last night. I mean, even up to the last night, um, it was still just, you know, touch and go. I mean, she... It never leaves you, does it, no. Brett? You can, you can just go right back no. to that moment, for sure. Yeah. yeah, Brett was saying on the way over, you know, sometimes it feels like, a movie that you look back on because it was a different life that we never lose sight of. And when we go back and talk about it, yeah, I mean, you, you can have those feelings all over again. Um, there's definitely a bit of PTSD. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we talk about that frequently and yeah. on this podcast. We yeah. talk, we talk yeah. about that. Um, but you did make it through. You made it through that last night and you welcomed the boys at 24 weeks and five days. Now, did you all know anyone who had been through the NICU? No, I no. didn't. We didn't. I, I didn't know the NICU existed mm -hmm. <laughs> when the doctors, you know, you I'm sure you remember um, when the NICU um, attendings start coming in, I think around 22 weeks um, coming into your room to 
explain what, what might happen and what decision you want to make if they are not at viability. Um, and we start negotiating with ourselves. Well, if it's 23 weeks and six days and five days and, you know, you get you cross that bridge when you get there, what would we do? What would our decision be? Um, unfortunately, you know, they did get to 24 weeks and five days. Um, so the decision was kind of made for us. Um, and yeah, the, the introduction that they gave into the NICU what made it a, a bit of a softer transition. Mm -hmm. um, but we were just like imagining what this world was like. And then when we got there, it was like this dark corner of the hospital that's just hidden away that nobody knows about. I mean, overwhelming. Yeah, I think as much a good job as they um, frame what to the best that they're able to, um, you know, you're still sort of can't even begin to imagine what world you're stepping into. But, uh, you know, to to the credit of, of the NICU, I mean, they really did, they didn't try to paint any more of a rosy picture than, you know, we were going to be faced with. And, um, you know, I think at that point, that was the first reality. Because at that up to that point, no one even really was giving us a shot of even getting. So it was just mm -hmm. not even like a conversation mm -hmm. to then have to now think about, it was it was just unfathomable to have to just start to make you know these decisions and um it was just something that um yeah it doesn't leave, it does not it does not leave you no and ever. and i think that's something i want to talk to you about because i know we've shared our story over the years and with each other and when you look at the decisions that you both had to make for the boys when we look at the decisions that we talked about, I mean, how did you get through that? How did you how did you end up making those really hard, difficult decisions even after the boys were born in the NICU? I think we well, we were a really good team in that regard, whereas I was really sort of just obsessed with research and Obsessed, you? Well, <laughs> Melissa was more of like a taskmaster and like she was able to, you know, get things done and just, you know, never accept just sort of a, any answer that, you know, that, that we were being given. So clinically, I think Melissa really wanted to understand everything. So I was trying to sort of, you know, try to remove yourself from the situation and try to remove all the emotion from it as best you can and and really try to make sure that you're not making like convenient decisions or decisions because you're scared but the the best decisions are making sure you're not doing them for emotional reasons and based upon the information that you have. exactly yeah. which sometimes is different and coming from you know different sources and emotionally you're maybe perceiving it not in the way that that you should so you know i think in that regard we were really good partners for, for one another. We kept each other, you know, balanced. Now you, you had a roller coaster ride of a NICU journey and even after the NICU, which I'm looking forward to you sharing with the listeners. Tell us about the boys NICU journey and what that looked like for you all and for them. When they were first born, um, there really weren't any crazy extreme concerns. I mean, there were a pound seven and a pound eight ounces. I mean, that's a concern. Um, both were breathing on their own initially. As you know, they tend to puff out and um, very regular uh, par for the course. They um, go on, um, they get intubated then. Um, 
But nothing in, in the early days. So we were hoping that we would just wait and watch and they would grow. They just have to get bigger, right? We were constantly wishing them to get bigger. Um, and that's a common theme, I think, throughout. Uh, I mean, it took years for us to get past that, to grow out of their issues. Um, but it started early. Um, and so uh, they went through a lot of the typical stuff, right? Um, Retinopathy of prematurity, I think, was one of the earliest, uh, the early exposure to oxygen. Many preemies wind up um, having uh, laser ablation. Cameron had, um, um, what was he, what did he? He, oh, he had meningitis yeah, early on, yeah. It was, it was one of the first things that, that had happened. Yeah, yeah. It, the memories get spotty as to the order, you know, because, uh, again, that PTSD kicks in. There's and, yeah, there's a lot of things you... Blockout and a lot of things that um, it, it's just too much to organize. But yeah, Cameron did have meningitis early on, and um, it, it was really scary. That was the first thing that we were encountered with, and it was uh, the first time. You know, you walk into the NICU, you wash your hands, and um, infection prevention is so huge, right? I mean, we can all relate to that yes. now. Um, Still, always. <laughs> But in, in very different ways. So like yes. we were quarantining, uh, you know, much, much earlier than the rest of the world. Um, and still, no matter how safe we were, um, there was another child that had meningitis in his row. And somehow, you know, they, Cameron got it. Um, and so um, he had a, um, what was it called? The, his break yeah in in his he has scars you know in his neck to his chest um to do the port because their little veins are so fragile as you know um they just are constantly blowing veins and they just need that access so um he did well with the therapies from the meningitis but they do believe or you know was suspected that it probably had advanced his retinopathy of prematurity to a different state of what yeah. other kids experience in the NICU Typically, they get the laser ablation, and they're nearsighted. They wear glasses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's pretty common. Um, Cameron had the laser ablation. Brody had it, too. Brody, you know, no issues after that. Cameron had it, and um, there was still what they called a chemical war going on in his eyes, um, and it was pulling on his retinas. And um, we were very fortunate to have... Uh, Rick Kaiser uh, at Will's Eye, uh, who's still, you know, Cameron still sees him once a year. He's one of those heroes of, of the journey. Um, Rick uh, studied under Dr. Tracy and Dr. Capone in out of um, Beaumont Hospital in Michigan, um, who were the only doctors in the world, <laughs> really, that could save uh, Cameron's vision. Um, Two doctors in the, in the entire world. And we had 48 hours to mm -hmm. make sure they were in the country and we could fly him low altitude to get him to Michigan to try to save his vision. Right. When we flew to Michigan, we didn't know if Cameron was sighted or not. Or if we were going to have a house when we got back to pay for the flight. <laughs> well, and <laughs> I remember the day that you all left. We were in the NICU together. And I remember when you left that day. It him. was intense. Um, even just getting the insurance approvals for all of this, you know, talk about fighting and advocating and questioning things. Um, you know, the last thing that uh, most people can think about is having to fight insurance for your child's vision and getting the right therapy. But we have Will's Eye right here. We have CHOP uh, right here. So um, there are plenty of doctors who 
probably would have tried to take it on if, you know, we hadn't. They were. Hmm? I think they were, actually. I think we were fortunate that Mm -hmm. he was a little aggressive with some of the doctors. I remember being, there was calls made like, stand down like this needs to happen. Right, right. So we had to get the right approvals. We went to Michigan on a uh, nurse-staffed Learjet while Cameron was still on CPAP respiratory support. Um, in his little bullet. Yeah. Um, and um, we were able to each take, uh, well, we took one backpack um, for the two of us and we went there not knowing when we'd come back and we had to leave our other son, Brody. Who uh, still intubated. Who was still intubated um, and had his own set of incredibly complex issues. Uh, we had to leave Brody in the NICU at Abington and just head out. And we just dealt with things, um, the most critical thing at the moment, that's what we dealt with. And then, and then we would deal with the, the next one. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when we went out there, um, it was, it was quite a low, I think one of the, our first biggest lows in our experience. It was the first time that like every, we were away from, I mean, we were away from everything else. Everything that we knew, right? The NICU becomes, your NICU becomes your home. Just the two of us in this dreary apartment and waiting to see if he was even going to be able to see. And I think that was important at that point was it started the where the journey started then took two paths. Mm-hmm. From that point forward, logistically, you know, our kids were, I don't know if they ever again, maybe for a very short period of time, were ever in the same hospital again. Mm-hmm. And that became like probably the the biggest struggle was logistically always, you know, b- there was one kid in one hospital, another kid in another hospital. It just was extremely difficult to ever feel like you're giving what you can to to the kid that needs it because there's it was just I mean it it was it was very difficult. Well, I think you said such an important piece of advice. We hear a lot from families. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I don't know if I'm making the right decision. I don't know how to make these decisions. But I think hearing from you, Melissa, we tackled the most critical challenge at the moment, right? And when you look at the the decisions that you have to make and categorizing them in the most critical, what can wait, you know, how do we tackle this? I think that's such a great piece of advice. And I have to tell you both, listening to your story, knowing your story personally as well, I think it's so important for people to know that they are not alone. Others have navigated through everything that you all have gone through. I'm sure there is somebody sitting out there going, I'm, I'm the only one doing this. I'm, you know, how am I supposed to get through this? And I think it's so important that they hear others have gone through it. Yeah. Right. I think something that um, was, I think something that was really important that, you know, Melissa actually pushed for and that we did was I think it's easy to sort of let other people sort of start to, um, you know, the voices start to get to you. And I think that we made decisions that maybe didn't seem as popular at the time. And, you know, certain hospitals may have not have been as, prestigious as others, but believe that the specialty that we were seeking in that particular hospital was exactly what we needed. And I think that it was difficult to take that risk. And I think you just have to say, look, I'm going to do what's best for my kid mm-hmm. and I'm just going to move forward and be confident with it, knowing that, you know, people, why, why, why you're, you have chop here? Why are, you, why are you going there? And it's, you know, I mean, that's the difficult part when people start to second guess you and you're just in action mode. Like, I think that that can be difficult. So. So after the eye surgery, how long were you in Michigan? Two weeks. Right. We were there over the holidays. Yeah, two weeks. And then came back to the hospital. We came back to Abington to have to um, start to make decisions with Brody. We knew at that point 
that the surgery was, we had got him there in time that he was eligible to have his vision saved. And we left there with them saying that they did not believe he would see darkness. Right, but we didn't That's, know what level of right, vision he would right. have. It could have been anywhere from, you know, blurry to like, you know, hard, really hard to see, really hard to function. So talk to us about Brody's journey through the NICU. What did that look like for him? Um, another common uh, common ailment with preemies is uh, reflux. Cameron had it too, but Cameron's was as bad, but it didn't impact his airway. So when the acid uh, from the stomach constantly hits the airway, and then you have that in combination with children that have difficulty getting extubated, um, Brody was intubated, extubated upwards of 10 times, um, constantly hit with steroids to bring down the inflammation. So you have inflammation in the airway and then constant reflux. He never got a break. Um, so his apnea, uh, was different. <laughs> it was life-threatening many times. Um, he had to be resuscitated many times. Um, and so eventually, we were hoping that the intervention could be uh, getting uh, his getting his G tube, um, but having his stomach wrapped as well, uh, fund application. So he was uh, taken to St. Chris. That was the hospital they were associated with at the time. He couldn't breathe. Right. He was blue. Well, so he was taken to St. Chris uh, to get his um, his stomach surgery, stop the reflux, and um, now feed through the G tube to gain weight. Uh, he also expired a lot of calories, um, just just trying to breathe, <laughs> simple things that we all take for granted. And um, so he was failure to thrive, and we just had to pump his little belly uh, full of food in a different way. So um, he had the surgery, and it stopped it for a while. We were still having difficulty uh, extubating him, um, and he continued to have major retractions in the way that he breathed all the way. I mean, he went home with those retractions. Uh, so it became a norm. Unfortunately, he we came became... Home, came back the same day. Right. Well, we... Had, I mean... Do you remember the term NICU-itis? You yes. become very... You put the blinders on and you... That was our norm with, mm -hmm. with our child. We've never been parents before. We've never been through this. That was Brody's norm. That was the way he breathed. And as long as he was gaining weight, we kept that, that going. Um, so... Um, he was eventually discharged that way and went home and we had multiple occasions where, uh, he went down. Um, so he came home on just oxygen and a constant, um, apnea monitor, um, his pulse ox and, uh, nurses just kind of dropping in. Um, and we had an episode where, uh, he went down. We were in a new construction development. The ambulance couldn't find us. We had to throw him in the back of the car and rushed to St. Chris from Bucks County. Blue the whole time. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, he was seizing in the back of the car. Um, so this was our first week home with uh, a new baby um, who had taken several months more than his brother to get home. I think, like, the lesson, really, that I took from that was mm -hmm. sort of, like, you know, when you have a, you're in the NICU, you sort of how to get like indoctrinated into this little small family and you start to sort of judge progress by everybody else. And I think it's easy to look at all the different, 
goals and, you know, you want your kid to be intubated, extubated. But at the end of the day, I mean, every kid needs, you know, what they need. And as a parent, if you feel like your child is being, you know, uh, is pushed, being pushed too fast, that you absolutely should stand up and say something. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that yeah. then. And, and, and you didn't. can't know that we, when we, you're we going didn't. through We it. didn't know that. We didn't know it. And, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that was necessarily, I'm not saying that was necessarily even the case with, with Brody. I just think that like you want to be cognizant of like, is it trying to get the child out of the NICU and home and then, or is it getting him out of the NICU to where he's going to be able to thrive and move forward when they get home? I think there's like a, a really big difference between It's, a, it's a hard balance to find. Yeah. I mean, it, well, 1% of... Uh, NICU babies, or I think 1% of all children, maybe even, um, get trached. Yeah. Did he have his trach when he went home the first time, or he came back then? He went back to Abington um, and then uh, was discharged, what, a few days later. Had another episode at home where when I, once I threw him in the car um, to get to St. Chris, we never came out of St. Chris. Mm-hmm. So he was trached at St. Chris uh Difficult decisions, right? Because because we had been uh, we had been told that up until this point that again one percent of of kids get trachs. It's um, very unlikely. He just needs to get bigger. His airway needs to get bigger. He needs to just grow. Um, and uh, when we got to St. Chris, we met another hero of the story, um, Dr. Steinfeld, a pulmonologist there, who uh, said. All right, you know, because uh, we were resistant, I'll I'll hang out. We'll we'll see how it goes. Um, but I'm telling you, he's walking the line. Um, and there was a point where he said, "Okay," and and he helped us make that decision. Mm-hmm. It was hard. I mean, he immediately got sepsis after he was trached, which was really hard. Like after we made that decision, and that was probably the lowest point. I mean, that was the lowest point of the entire process. When, I mean, because they said that he couldn't breathe any longer. It was like traking him was letting him breathe. There was really no more options. Mm-hmm. It was like, let's, he can breathe and he will be able to hopefully wean off the oxygen and it's not a big deal. He's going to function in every other way. It wasn't something that was necessarily neurological. And, um, but as soon as we did that, um, during the recovery process, he started to swell up. And I mean, they had to put him in a medically induced coma and they, he had a hospital acquired infection, they had and us bring um, our families and they caught. Mem- I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was horrible. So Brody got a hospital acquired infection, and um, they had a hard time identifying what it was. Um, it wound up being um, candida yeast in his bloodstream that went septic. Um, so he was supposed to be traked to room air, and then he would be walking and getting around just like any other kid, but give his airway um, that reprieve. Um, and, um, he was never traked to room air. He was traked right to life support. Um, and yeah, that was, that was another really crazy low point for us. Um, because while they couldn't, they were waiting for the cultures to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, his leg was cold and his head was blue and we were making those, we were, we were making those arrangements. There was no more. Um, they had said that the last, the last, um, IV they put through his heart. And they said there was, that was it. Like if, he, was his last if the infection continued, there was nowhere else to put it. And that's, you know, that night, I think we all went through that night thinking that we wouldn't see him again. This is also an experience in questioning things 
Uh, we joked that I had made residents there cry <laughs> because every morning at rounds, not having answers wasn't acceptable. Right. Um, and I pushed and I pushed um, and I researched and I researched. And, you know, finally, when they were able to identify that it was Canada, then they could treat it. Uh, well, and properly. I, I think you made a good point. What we were talking about a little bit earlier, that one of the heroes of the story, the doctor who recognized that he needed a trach put in to help him breathe. I mean, I think it's finding the medical providers that you feel really good mm -hmm. with and that it's okay to go and find second opinions. It's okay to call other hospitals. It is okay to do the work that you need to do and to ask the questions. I mean, you both are the biggest advocates out there for Brody and Cameron. It's really incredible and a testament to you two for all that you have done for your sons. I, I mean, just amazing. But it is that never giving up of asking questions. Um, I did want to ask you about when you came home from the NICU. Cameron had already come home. Brody was still in the hospital. When Brody came home, what did that look like for you all with Brody. their medical needs? Brody didn't come home initially. He was released to a rehab facility so that he could learn how to breathe um, and sit up at the same time so that he could learn how to eat and breathe at the same time. So that was in New Jersey. We lived in Bucks County. Um, Cameron wasn't allowed to go initially. So again, we were, we were separate. Brody was in hospitals for 10 months. Um, our kids didn't get to interact with one another. We had a NICU at our house. Right. I mean, after we did. After, after he finally reached those milestones through rehab. And I, I say the term, the phrase that we, we rehabilitated babies, which is just yeah. a, a contradiction of terms. Right. But it, it really is. I, what, I don't think most families, I think, I mean, I don't think most families would have made the decision that we made to send Brody to Weissman. I think that was, and in hindsight, it was probably the best decision that we made. That's know? the rehabilitation It facility. was, yeah, because it wasn't necessarily deemed mandatory, but it was, we knew that having him there, he would be able to get the physical therapy every day and the staff there really loved him. And it was just another case again of just sort of like Melissa understanding like what the kids needed and doing the research and just sort of saying like, I know what's best for my kids. So like, we're just going to make a decision and let's just go rather than, you know, sit and wait and feel sorry for ourselves. Well, and Melissa, talking about that, researching, finding the information that you needed, how did you find the right specialist? I mean, what did you do to find the right specialist? Your boys were in some clinical trials, right? They're in kind of constantly ongoing. Yeah, if, if you're a part of um, certain clinics within CHOP, um, you know, you are opted in, but uh, nothing that we're aware of any major, okay. you know, changes yet. But how, how do you, how did you go about finding those specialists? What well, was yeah, your I mean, process for that? They did, he took a Vastin, which at the time was like experimental, and then the, he had his the right. cartilage harvested. But I mean, it was relentlessness. That's what it was. I mean, it was relentlessness. It was relentlessness, but it was also, um, there were times that things were so critical that it took us to a different place. And in that moment, we had to say, are we going back to Abington or are we going to St. Chris, where we had been introduced to the, some of the doctors through their consults with Abington. Um, it was just clear that uh, there would be moments that we would have to make tough calls yeah. to pivot. Um, so... We were fortunate to find 
doctors that we related to and trusted yeah. and they proved themselves to us in each of the facilities that we touched. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, here they are 11 years old and, um, you know, they have been at Abington, uh, Beaumont Hospital in Michigan, um, St. Christopher's um, and CHOP. And at one point um, they were seeing specialists at both St. Chris and CHOP and it's not an easy process. Electronic health records using, doesn't mean anything. They were using handwritten notes back then. Right. Okay. No, they were faxing. Um, communication all had to go through us. And, we and that was in addition to other therapies that they had. Yeah. PT, right? Physical oh, yeah. therapy, speech therapy. Yeah. Well, it was very hard because we couldn't even get to that place until they weren't so medically fragile for a lot of a lot of the time. But yes, it was a lot to coordinate. Um, and um, Brody was on life support at home. Yeah. Um, so we had a binder for each kid. Brody traveled with his binder and his, you know, armory of equipment and, and a, a nurse at all times. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's even in those days, it's hard to recall every, when they say, well, what surgeries have your kids had? You know what? I think Melissa, one thing that I think like we were never afraid of was finding doctors that were, were would allow us to challenge them and to push them and to really try to push the limits of, you know, what type of options are available, especially with, you know, when you have kids that are born under two pounds, it's a whole different type of medicine. And there's the traditional rules no longer apply. So a lot of times there's different techniques that doctors are using that they're maybe not going to use every day. And maybe there's things that you need to pull out of them. And I think by really pushing doctors and pulling out different things, we were able to find some things that were maybe not things that were being used every day, but like, like Dr. Chan, he was like, you know, one of those doctors, Dr. Kai's, I mean, like there was just doctors that we, I mean, we just wanted to know everything that was happening in the future. And was there something else that we could possibly do for our kid in that moment? But Brett, can I ask you just as yeah. a dad in the NICU? Yeah. How did you get through it from a dad's perspective? And maybe what advice do you have for other dads that are going through this and how you were a support? I think it was a little unique just because we had twins. So I think in that scenario, the dynamic's a little bit different. There's a lot less decisions that need to be made. There's two kids, so two parents. So there's always a child that's going to need to be accounted for. But I think that, you know, look, back then, I mean, it was very difficult. It's hard when, you know, you a lot of times when something like this happens, maybe you're aware, but there's other times when you're not. And when it happens and you're not, and your your ecosystem of friends has never experienced anything like that. And it's almost as if the advice you're getting is making things even worse because people are minimizing your situation and just being like, ah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it was very hard to, you become very isolated very fast and you just sort of go into like, well, like, I'll worry about this, you know, when when, when we, we get through this. But it was, again, I mean, like, my number one thing was I, I was, even after the children were born, I mean, Melissa still had, like, a difficult time. I mean, not physically, you know. I mean, I was, like, really concerned about Melissa. And, I mean, you were fight or flight for a very long time. I mean, you just wanted everyone to live and get through it. And then from there, you would figure it out. And then that's when the hard work really started. I mean, I mean Melissa coordinating the therapies, I mean, that was – a hundred times harder than, you know, anything we did in, in the NICU. Well, yeah, we didn't know how to navigate having a child on life support at home. There's no guidebook. Um, that was, you know, what helped me make that decision to, to have Brody go to rehab after. 
Um, it was for us to learn how to care for a child with a trach. You have to change his trach every week. You have to change his G-tube every week. Um, nursing is, there's not enough skilled nursing. Um, so We had a nurse in our house at some point every day for probably two years. There was a, not a day that went by. So there, there was no sleeping. I mean, so making that decision was also training for us to equip us to be able to handle this. It was terrifying, and I wasn't ready. And it was giving you all the resources that you could to go home and to manage this on your own in helping in helping. Yeah, yeah it takes it takes yeah. a village. You know, that's grandparents were the only ones that were allowed in because it was uh, we were in isolation. Brody could not get sick again. Um, so. The grandmothers are our other co-parents, um, and thank God for them. We could never really be, even though there were two of us and two kids, we could never really be alone with the kids on our own. Uh, we needed the nurse. When the nurse wasn't there, um, even the two of us and two grandmothers sometimes wasn't enough. It was constant um, at home. It was... How was today? The G-tube the G exploded. Oh, that's it? Like, that was a good day? Well, that happened pretty much so. every day. <laughs> Well, and I, I want to ask you, with all that you had to take care of at home with the nurses, with the uh, the needs of both Brody and Cameron, what did that look like for you, Melissa, with your, your job? I mean, you had a full-time role before you yeah. welcomed the boys. What what happened there? This was a really hard reality for me. Um, we both had great careers and had really thought we achieved a place that, um, you know, you get married, you have kids, you're at this point in your career, you get the first house, you get the second house, and that's the way it goes. Um, and um, so accepting that reality changing so significantly um, felt selfish, but um, it was necessity. Uh, it was survival. And so I never planned on not working. Uh, and I had to stop. So um, I did medical device sales before. So I think that it helped equip me to do the proper research and know, you know, plenty about clinical trials. Um, so in some ways, I think that all of my career training to that point prepared me uh, to navigate all of this. Um, and, you know, we would, I, I, I stopped the day that I had to officially resign when all of my disabilities were over. It was like, I lost my identity. Um, but we don't, we don't matter anymore, right? It's it, We were in survival mode until mm -hmm. Brody got his trach out. So this is a good four years of chronic, um, serious medical conditions and balancing therapy with that. Right. I had to be fully committed to the kids. They were my job. Um, and again, rehabilitating them was, there was no other option for me. I was gonna give them all the resources that they could pass overkill at times, that they could possibly have to um, Brody. Uh, we didn't know if he'd ever walk or talk. I was gonna get that kid's legs moving. Like we did everything. We're determined, yeah. Outside of, um, outside of early intervention, we hired private consultants. Um, we were fortunate to be financially comfortable going into it. Uh, but no one planned for me not to work. We made financial decisions when there wasn't money to put towards it, to put towards it. Uh, we were um, committed to, if we had to lose everything, uh, we would do what we needed to do to give them all the resources. And 
you know, pay privately out of, out of pocket if needed for certain procedures um, and certain therapies. And I think it's really important to note, I feel like when you're in the middle of that, it probably felt like for you that it was going to go on forever, right? And you are now on the other side of that, back to work. And that was a chunk of time that you dedicated and then were able to get back into your career. Right. I had to reinvent myself a bit. Yes. But um, yeah, new career. Um, but yeah, looking re- looking back at it, uh, it, it's very hard when people, when you're in the NICU and you're going through the darkest days when people say, um, God only gives you as much as you can handle and there's a reason for everything and all of the little hopeful cliches because it just feels like no babies deserve this, right? Um, there's not always a reason for everything. So I can't um, look back and say, this was supposed to happen this way. But I think that uh, it served a purpose in all of our lives because we turned it into something good. Uh, we turned a bad experience into um, lessons. And um, I mean, I think the kids are, they're amazing kids, and they are such, such sensitive kids, very self-aware. Well, what I was going to say is they are a real inspiration for others. I mean, when you see them today and see their beautiful smiles and faces, and we've been friends for a long time, they are a true inspiration for other families. The boys are going to turn 11 as of the recording of this podcast, and they have certainly been through so much. And I really want to ask you both a question now. So while you both are no longer together as a couple, you co-parent, you work together to help them. What has that looked like for you? Brett, do you want to start? Stop laughing. (laughs) It's been a dream. (laughs) I think Melissa and I were just talking about this today. And I think that when when you go through something um, like we went through that, I think that there's a lot of, um, it's an experience that I think no matter if you're, with that person when they experience it or not, I just think it's something that for the rest of your life, not really anybody can ever put themselves in those shoes. And I think that, um, look, we had our challenges. I mean, like, I don't think it's any secret that, um, you know, kids that are born in, into the NICU present a tremendous amount of challenges for a really any marriage. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, look, in hindsight, if I would have known, if I would have known now, if, like how my kids are going now, I would have saved myself a lot of pain, you know, and I think it's like, it's hard to be positive, but I think if I were to go back, that was probably the thing that I r- regret the most. And I think that, you know, Melissa and I, I think always really made it a point to try to want to be better parents and better co-parents and like it wasn't always easy and um but i think that ultimately we got to a place to where i think that like a lot of people would probably be pretty jealous of the situation you know that we have so i'm fortunate the experience of feeling um isolated and lonely and like no one can relate um, you know, extends uh, even as far as people that have been through the NICU, no experience, no two experiences are the same. Um, we both went through together. Um, friends, our friends were wonderful. They were so supportive, but we were in a different world, you know, so we became reclusive. Um, 
the only other person that could understand what I was going through is Brett. The only other person, um, we just bonded that way. Uh, so no matter how crazy he drives me, um, no matter how much we fight, um, it's, we're divorced, you know, this, it's, it's a normal reality. Um, no matter what it looks like on the outside, I don't want to paint a picture that's rosier than it is, but we are both so, the reason we live is for our children. Um, they don't realize how lucky they are that we have the relationship that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And so disagreements aside, that's something that we always agree on Mm -hmm. is, um, that their best interests is in, is in, you know, always, the goal and um, that when we do things together and we have experiences together, we go to basketball games, we will have days at the shore together. um, We try to do some holidays together. Uh, I'm good friends with his girlfriend. Um, You know, our families, we're still both, um, you know, very kind of like tied in. They'll always be family. So the more that we can show them that divorce doesn't make them any different, um, that your family will still do things together. Your parents still care very much about one another. And, you know, they, they, I think they have a pretty awesome life. And so my goal, look, when your kids start off this way, I think you're constantly overcompensating (laughs) for the trouble and, and the, uh, the difficulty that they've had. Um, I mean, they're, they barely remember it, but, um, we, try to overcompensate with happiness and, you know, giving them the best memories that they can have. So, um, yeah, we're a team. I think we were the best team ever when I was in the hospital, when they were in the NICU, we complimented each other really well. Um, you know, we, we fought together and you get home and it's a new normal and it's not normal. We did not have anything close to normal. So, um, kind of what happened from there is, pretty natural considering the circumstances. Um, and now, you know, we're just back to that, that partnership in, in a different way. I think it was important for me. I think that, you know, everyone has their own experience, but like at the end of the day, no matter what happened with Melissa and my marriage, I mean, my kids are here because of her and it was important for my kids to know that. And no matter what happened with us, it was always just really important for me that they knew that and that they knew that I felt that, and they do. It's, so. a, it's a really valid point. Like we are both responsible for why they're here and why they're so great. And there's, there's just bonds in, in the whole experience that no one could relate to. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I think that will really resonate with a lot of people who are, because it is a struggle, a marriage, and when you go through so many traumatic things. So I appreciate your honesty and, and sharing your personal story. You have shared a lot today. Your journey is even more than what we even talked about today, but uh, a resource for families who want to learn more and see what you have gone through. You have a blog that you kept and refer to as a baby book, to mm-hmm. say, right? You have it here. You have it here. Um, but you have a blog, and I remember reading the blog. But can you, it, it, while it may not be up to date now with the boys, you share a lot about your story. And where could people learn more? It's twotoughtwins.blogspot.com. 
two, T-W-O-T-O-U-G-H-T-W-I-N-S, that blogspot.com. It started as um, a journal entry that I wrote when I was on uh, in the hospital. Um, my own, my own thoughts. I was just writing it's to my. It's raw. It's it's it raw. It's raw. The first one, it was rough. Yeah, and then it became when you're in the NICU and everyone wants updates. Um, everyone kind of feels entitled to updates. It it's becomes overwhelming. Very cumbersome, um, and so it turned into uh, a place to update everyone, um, and then it became just really cathartic. I highly recommend anyone going through. Uh, this type of an experience or just having children with chronic medical issues. Um, I kept it as um, a, com- a way to communicate with people, but also my own therapy. There were days where it felt like it was a task um, to complete and get it all out, but it, it is the baby book. There's no time uh, to be doing all the cute stuff. And There was also there days of- that we felt like it, it was a miracle, right? I mean, like yeah. it wasn't all, I mean, there, and it was like, oh my God, like, we need to capture this. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. the days that are horrific, but at the same time, then there's days you're like, oh my God, does he see that? Like, he really sees that? Like, we have to get that. So So now you said, looking back, you know, 11 years later, did I ever imagine we'd be here? No, I was terrified that we wouldn't get here. I was terrified of what it would look like when we got here, if we we were fortunate enough to make it that far. Um, And... There's no way you would expect a happy ending if you read this. So anybody that wants motivation, if they read this and then met my children, it would give them reason to keep pushing and keep believing because this story does not look like it's going to have a happy ending, but it does. And what I'm so grateful for, and you and I have stayed in touch over the years when we have families who have gone through similar journeys to you or components of the journeys that you tackled with either one of your sons, you've been such a great resource for others to talk with them about how you got through it. And I'm really grateful to yeah. you for that. I, I would love to continue doing more of it. Um, all I wanted to see was when we were in the NICU was what is it going to look like 10 years down the road? Don't we all, Melissa? Don't we all? <laughs> and, you know, 10 years prior, it looked very different, right? It's all, it's all come very far. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very different story now um, than what a lot of the children and and the situations that you know we would have heard stories from. So um, yeah, always always willing to share and and want to be more involved. So do you have a piece of advice that you would give to other families going through the NICU right now, Brett? I'll start with you. <laughs> um. Your your story is yet to be written. I think that it's easy to, you know, write an ending, but I, I really think that you know, that's what I did. And I think that I'm ashamed to say it, but, you know, I think that you need to really just sort of accept the fact that your story is going to be a little different, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be as fulfilling or it's not going to be as rewarding and you just need to, to keep going. And, um, it sounds pretty basic and pretty cliche, but I mean that's that's really the best advice I could give. Ask a lot of questions and don't ever don't ever uh, feel like that if you're not getting the answers to questions from a, a particular doctor, then keep asking until you get them because you have a right to to understand um, you know what your child is going to experience. Right. Yeah. Um, so I I think that a lot of people uh, will put their hands in complete trust with uh, the trained medical professionals who are amazing at what they do. 
the question, question, question. There's a thin line between Googling to to learn a bit about um, what to question, right? It's about having resources. Um, so like I said, I, I felt equipped to do the research um, and to disseminate what was applicable and, and what wasn't. Um, but not all people have that. Um, so find an advocate, um, find many advocates from different angles um, and uh, just be a student of it all. Um, be a student, learn, question Except when something help. seems viable, then push for it because it's not always easy. It's never easy to get the resources that you need, um, but we're still fighting for things, you know, fighting and advocating. And I don't think, I don't want to put that in a bad light um, because it's what's gotten them to be as, as, you know, successful in everything that they do. And just to um, just be the best kids ever uh, because they've had resources that um, maybe if we hadn't pushed for them, you know, wouldn't have had the same Results. I, I believe that 100%. There's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. No doubt in my mind. You talk about keeping your blog, Two Tough Twins, to share your story through the NICU and after the NICU. Brett, you talk about the happy ending. Well, what does that happy ending look like? How are Cameron and Brody doing today? I mean, they're two thriving, rambunctious 11-year-olds. Fresh 11-year-olds. Yeah, that, <laughs> that do things that, you know, I used to pray all night if I would ever be able to do them with them you know now it's it's just it's unbelievable there's not a day that goes by that I'm not um you know I don't thank God for you know who, who they are today so so um Brody uh does not have his trach he got it out at three and a half um, he did have a surgery that uh, to open his airway up that impaired his vocal cords. So his voice is a little different. He has a voice. There was a point we were um, we were trying to learn sign language. We didn't know if he'd ever walk uh, or talk, talk or walk. Um, and Brody now plays basketball and just doesn't doesn't stop. I mean, he is doesn't stop talking. We didn't know if he'd ever be able to play sports. Um, so just live in his best life. And um, Cameron is very functionally sighted uh, and able to do all the the typical things. He knows his limits, um, very self-aware, um, but they both went to day camp uh, this summer and very different terrain, very unpredictable. Cameron did great. They're you know, in regular there's... schooling, yep. regular camp. I mean, you know, they have uh, some additional help, but for the most part, they're, um, you know, they're on track with, you know, kids that are, are their age. So I think amazing. that's, that's the most important part. Really amazing. Well, thank you both for being here and thank you for all you have done to help Brody and Cameron be the best that they can be. It's really great talking with you today. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. This episode of the Today is a Good Day podcast is brought to you with support from Life Celebration by Givnish and KeyBank. Bank. 